You are listening to the Forge Leadership Podcast. Forge Leadership Network mentors, trains, and connects young conservatives ages 18 to 25, equipping them to lead in politics, culture, and business. For more information or to get involved, visit forgeleadership.org. this moment like it was yesterday. I was sitting on a chair next to a fireplace. It was November, it was raining outside, it was cold. And I was reading a book, and I was reading that book in the context of someone who felt like his worldview had been shattered. Like a lot of you, I was involved in politics, I did speech and debate in high school. I was someone who grandparents, aunts and uncles always said, you're going to be a lawyer or a politician someday. I can't wait to vote for you someday. And so I thought I had the answers. All I needed to do was go to a really good conservative college like Hillsdale College and get that four-year degree, and then I would be off to the races to save the world. And the truth of the matter was, I had all of the right policy outcome, top level, bottom line, this is what a government should do. But I lacked something that Josh Mandel told you guys about on Thursday night. I lacked a sufficient why for my conclusions. And so when the stock market crashed and my parents' 401k took a dive, and it looked like the entire world was coming down in 2008, and then the Republicans lost and Barack Obama was nominated and then elected as our president, and it looked like on the way out, George W. Bush betrayed everything that I believed in by nationalizing through the Toxic Acid Relief Program and TARP. I thought, I don't know what I believe anymore, but I had a professor who told me to read a book. And I read that book sitting by that fireplace and realized I could find the answer to the why of what I believed. And even though I've been wrong about a lot of stuff, I could regain an intellectual foundation for my conclusions. That's what I want to talk to you guys about today. Today, I'm going to talk about the flavors of intellectual conservatism, subtitled Four Heads, One Heart Revisited. Just to give you a roadmap, we're going to talk about what the heart of conservatism is. A lot of people say that conservatives have no heart. There's that famous phrase, if you, you know, you're, you're not a liberal when you're 20, you have no heart. If you're not a conservative by the time you're 40, you have no brain. Right? But conservatives do have a heart, and I want to tell you about that. I'm going to talk about the four flavors or heads, different schools of intellectual thought about conservatism. Traditionalism, libertarianism, natural rights conservatism, and faith-based conservatism. So you can understand the why. This is sort of like a Myers-Briggs of conservative thought. How many of you have taken, you know, you know ENTJ, that's what I am. I find that to be very useful as a taxonomy. It doesn't conclude your study of your person and understanding yourself, so too this will not conclude your study of what conservatism means, but it will give you a, a taxonomy, a, a catalog as it were, so you can begin, and I'm going to give you some thoughts about that. Uh, or maybe being like, you know, what kind of conservative are you is more like, you know, which kind of Pokemon team are you on there? <laughs> this talk is not about flavor Flav, just because it's about the flavors of conservatism. <laughs> this talk is not about voting blocks. And I want to emphasize that, because there's a lot to talk about when it comes to, you know, what does it mean to get one group, one generation, or one particular issue group? What issues appeal to different voting blocks? You see the electoral vote there, it was a slaughter. 
Henry Olson, a friend of mine and a fellow alumni of the University of Chicago, wrote a book about that, The Four Faces of the Republican Party. That's not what this talk is about. If you want to learn more about that, it's extremely valuable to understand liberals, moderates, some conservative, secular, very conservative, religious, very conservative. Instead, this talks about upstream ideas that shape downstream culture and politics. What people believe in voting blocks are usually the product of something else. Practical men who believe themselves to be quite exempt from any intellectual influence are usually the slaves of some defunct economist. Madmen in authority who hear voices in the air are distilling their frenzy from some academic scribbler a few years back. John Maynard Keynes, I would consider him to be one of those academic scribblers, was right about how ideas shape politics. This talk is about something that influenced me, that book that I told you about that I was reading in November. Ronald Reagan said he kept two books in his desk. Now, whether it's true or not, the story is apocryphal, and I tend to believe it when the giver says something. He said the first of those books is the Holy Bible. The second of those books is a book known as Ideas Have Consequences. It was written by an author, also a University of Chicago professor, Richard M. Weaver. <clears throat> That's a phrase that the conservative movement has adopted as its own because the why has consequences for your outcome. And even if your set of reasons that derive a particular conclusion, maybe you like low taxes because you want the economy to grow, maybe you like low taxes because you like freedom, that has an impact on the bottom line because ideas are upstream from culture and politics. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a framework. We're talking about visions. When we're talking about the conservative heart, we're talking about those underlying ideas that are beneath us. A guy named Joseph Schumpeter, a Nobel Prize winning economist, described a vision as a pre-analytic cognitive act. That's a really smart, fancy set of words to mean before you are thinking with your brain consciously, your brain has already been thrown into first gear, you've let your foot off the clutch, and you're off to the races. In other words, you have a pre-analytic. Before you've thought about it, you already have your conclusion. Now that's a combination of emotions, but it's also a combination of those emotions based on worldview. These are deep ideas. They're not the ideas that you write out by hand when you say, well, what, why are you conservative? Those are the things that maybe you don't even know subconsciously how they relate to you. So Thomas Sowell is a guy who uh, I was told to read his books by Justice Clarence Thomas. I was raised in a family where if a Supreme Court justice tells you to read a book, you read a book. And he said you should read A Conflict of Visions by Thomas Sowell. Conflict of Visions describes how most political conflicts come down to two underlying visions, the unconstrained vision and the constrained vision of human nature. And I'm going to tell you what those things mean. The unconstrained vision of human nature starts with this fundamental proposition. Man's understanding and disposition, his nature, can evolve and change to create social benefits. That view of human nature is that humans are not constrained by our nature, but rather can learn to change our nature consciously. And whether we change it consciously or not, that change in our nature is inevitable. There's a slow sort of evolutionary process to it. This is the spirit of the age. Intentions are the essence of virtue. Someone who believes in the unconstrained vision really cares a lot about someone's intentions. Because if you could intentionally change your nature and you intend something different from changing your nature for the better, you're a bad person. Why would you not intend to do good if by merely intending to do good you could achieve it? And 
The immediately effective incentive, the last point there I think is really important, is not important. They want to free natural man from his current selfish state. And the reason for the current selfish state of mankind is external to us. It's society, it's the institutions that surround us. This is in contrast to the constrained vision of human nature. The constrained vision says that man is morally limited and egocentric. What that means is that human beings have short vision. There are constraints that we assume do not change, that the same human being that existed in 400 BC and 400 AD and 1940 AD and today, those human beings have a fundamental continuity of nature. Man is flawed and fallible. There's something about our nature that does not change, and that aspect of, of that is that we are limited in our abilities. And so actions, not intentions, matter. People won't live up to their best of intentions. And so the constrained vision of human nature says, you know what? It's not who you are on the inside that defines you, it's what you do. To quote Batman Begins, right? Ultimately, the fruit of what you actually believe is your actions. If there's not an integration, if there's not an integration between your external and your internal, what's on the inside isn't really who you are. Incentives for moral action optimize behavior. You're going to be able to appeal to someone's limited, egocentric self-interest through incentives. And incentives lead self-interest actions to become beneficial cooperation. And so policy is not about solutions, it's about trade-offs. Policy is about trade-offs. So this is a continuum, it's not a binary choice, right? You're not all constrained or all unconstrained in your thinking about human nature. You might think nature, the nature of man is more constrained or less constrained and different flavors of intellectual thought position themselves differently. But on the constrained side, you see our founding fathers, that's James Madison. What is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? If men were angels, no government would be necessary. And if angels were to govern men, neither external or internal controls on government would be necessary. So I want to breeze through a second aspect of that. So an application of the constrained versus unconstrained vision. Jonathan Haidt, he uh, gave a TED talk on his book, Our Righteous Minds. He's one of my favorite thinkers. He's a liberal at the University of Virginia, but a really, really bright guy because he wanted to understand what are the things that come preloaded on human beings that are universal to us. Are human beings born blind slates that are completely dependent on our nurture? Or is there some nature to human beings? And what he found is that there are, for conservatives, five basic moral instincts that people are sort of born with. And those are harm, care, in other words, a moral value of not causing harm to other people and showing care for other people's feelings and emotions and empathy. Fairness, basic notions of treating people fairly how you would want to be treated, but also hierarchy and authority. Other kinds of mammals have hierarchies, but they're almost always based on domination and on force, right? So if you look at primates, it's the big primate that ends up being the one that gets all the respect of the other ones. But human beings aren't like that. We'd say that was the greatest generation, even though they're kind of cranky and old right now and they don't have a job, we still respect them because of something else. We are moral actors and we put ourselves into hierarchy. We also are in-group loyal. We are loyal to our families. We also create loyalties to teams and sports, to states, to political parties. And we also believe in sanctity and purity. In other words, we think that there's some measure of virtue that is attained by controlling your physical body's natures, right? So don't eat too much. Gluttony is a problem. Don't you know, end up being unchaste. 
sexually, you want to be pure. And so that's sort of the, the balance. And we all kind of believe in these things to equal measure for each of them. The conservative heart, then, is that because we are constrained, we believe we need all five moral principles for human flourishing. You need to care about people, be fair, you need authority and hierarchy to organize society, you need loyalty to your groups, and you need individuals who are personally sanctum, sanctity about themselves. Progressives, they also sort of have these things, but they really emphasize harm care and fairness. They care about other people a lot more instinctively than conservatives do. That's true. They actually think a lot more in terms of, is this causing harm or not? That's basically their common thread. And they care a lot about fairness. Liberals are always talking about fairness. But here's something interesting that Jonathan Haidt found. They hate hierarchy, in-group loyalty, and purity. They think of those things as oppression, bigotry, and repression. They don't find those to be part of the moral matrix, the moral hierarchy. And so, the unconstrained vision believes that we've evolved past the need for these vestigial aspects of moral value. Whereas the constrained vision says that there are unintended consequences for changing things that have built our civilization. If we have this part of our nature and you try and get rid of them, well, G.K. Chesterton says, don't ever take offense down until you know the reason it was put on, because there are unintended consequences. So the modern conservative movement is animated by these guttural heart instincts on the level of vision. James W. Caesar, uh, a person from whom I draw heavily in this talk, he's uh, also a scholar at the University of Virginia, and he teaches at Claremont occasionally and uh, at the Hoover Institute. He wrote a paper in 2010 at the height of the Tea Party, Four Heads and One Heart, the Modern Conservative Movement. Conservatism is a movement characterized by what was once known before multiculturalists took the term hostage as diversity. Conservatives have a multiplicity of perspectives for why they reach the conclusions that they do. Now we've moved out of the pre-analytic cognitive act, the heart, to the analytical side of that. How do we analyze things? Well, we start with the traditionalists. The traditionalist conservative is characterized by a respect for tradition. Where do they get that notion that tradition is so very important? Well, they're based on that notion of man's constrained nature. They say, hmm. If it's been working for a long time, that should receive presumption. So their foundation is history and culture. They look to Athens, Jerusalem, Rome, and London. Their premises are that we are shaped by culture and that ideology is a lie. If you believe you have a pat answer to every single kind of question preloaded in your political program, if you can say, oh yeah, I know the answer to this and I know the answer to that, the answer to this is it's, it's always about racism, it's always about bigotry, it's always about the man or patriarchy or whatever, that's a problem. They also have a great deal of skepticism about what they call modernity, right? They don't mean by that that they're skeptical of cell phones and laptops, although maybe sometimes it sort of seems like that. What they're really skeptical of are the changes in our value systems that produce these technologies and that these kind of technological innovations have caused upon us. So James W. Caesar says, traditionalists mistrust efforts at full-scale rational structuring in politics, deploring the introduction of theory or general ideas. If you have a general theory, because you're a human being and your vision is limited, chances are you're wrong, you're missing something. No one had to think of culture, it just is. They are super constrained. Order is the first thing. So here are some of the, my favorite traditions. Richard Weaver falls into that. Russell Kirk, who taught at Hillsdale College and wrote The Conservative Mind, sort of the founder of the intellectual conservative movement. You've got uh, uh, 
Eric Vogel in there with the corn rim glasses and the man with the pipe there is Michael Oakshot, and then the person after whom I was named, T.S. Eliot. I'm T.L.A. Eliot, Pastor, he's T.S. Eliot. Mm -hmm. He's a traditionalist. It is with an infinite caution that any man ought to venture upon pulling down an edifice which is answered in any tolerable degree for ages the common purpose of society. Edmund Burke is widely recognized as the founder of the traditionalist school of thought. Michael Oakeshott, the man of conservative temperament, believes that a known good is not likely to be surrendered for an unknown better. Traditionalists are like, don't get rid of it if it's been working for a long time, if there's no reason for you to get rid of it. <clears throat> Malcolm Muggeridge, that quote's long, I'm going to pull it along, and Russell Kirk there. So here are some good things to read if you want to understand the traditionalist school of thought. You want to read The Conservative Mind and Reflections on the Revolution of France by Kirk and Burke. Richard Weaver, Ideas Have Consequences. That was the book that I read that changed how I thought and realized I didn't really have a good set of whys. Uh, Michael Oakeshott's Rationalism in Politics. T.S. Eliot's The Idea of Christian Society, etc. And if you want more titles from me, you can talk to me afterwards. Libertarians. How many of you describe yourselves as leaning libertarian? I just want to show up hands right now, right? Leaning libertarian, libertarian conservative, full on. So a, a fair number of people in any group of millennials will, will describe that because libertarians are cool. Right? And one of the reasons that libertarians are cool is that they have good answers to things. To begin with, they say asymmetric information means the impersonal market coordinates self-interest with the common good. That's Frederick Hayek, a Nobel Prize winner. What they mean by that is essentially this. If you are a human being and you are guided by your own self-interest, you're going to end up benefiting other people. Adam Smith said, it is not from the benevolence of the butcher or the baker that we expect our bread, but rather from their self-interest. That person who is a butcher or baker is butchering meat and baking bread so that he can sell it and he can make a profit off of it. But because of that division of labor, everyone is better off because instead of having to bake your own bread and butcher your own meat, you could go do something else and you could be a lawyer, like I intend to be, and like not have to actually cook your own food and I'm doing something productive that is specialized in this kind of thing. So while the traditionalist looks to tradition as a source of knowledge and insight and wisdom, an impersonal force, the libertarian shares in common with them that they're looking at an impersonal force as a source of wisdom. But that impersonal force is the marketplace. right? They're looking at the way that the market works to understand how people work. Uh, they have two basic rules for how government works, and I think this is why libertarians are so appealing, why I consider myself a libertarian in high school, is that if you say, do all you've agreed to do, and don't encroach on others and their property, that's it. That's, that's all you need to do. Libertarianism is very simple to understand, and so it's very easy. But it tends towards the unconstrained vision. Ayn Rand, I think, is kind of like, mm, now saying, like, okay, maybe government's bad, but like capitalism can save us all and be the solution towards everything. Here are some great libertarians. You've got Hayek, you've got Milton Friedman, you've got Ludwig von Mises, you've got my professor and mentor, Richard Allen Epstein at the University of Chicago. You have Thomas Paine there, and you have Ayn Rand over there. She kind of looks, kind of looks evil with me. Um, <laughs> Frederick Bastiat, I think, is really uh, an important figure here. He, he sort of encapsulates that all right now. I'm not going to read that right now. Ludwig von Mises, if one rejects laissez-faire on account of man's fallibility and moral weakness, one must, for the same reason, reject every kind of government action. That kind of goes to what Ronald Reagan said. If we're too stupid and life is too complicated for us to govern ourselves, then what makes us think that anyone can govern anyone else? And of course, you know, give a man a fish and feed him for a day. <laughs> Don't teach a random fish and feed yourself. He's a grown man and fishing is not that hard. Libertarians, <laughs> you know, pull, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. 
Um, Frederick Bastiat, The Law, Ludwig von Mises' Liberalism is a short little tome. The Constitutional Liberty, a bit longer, but pretty accessible and good to read by Hayek. Milton Friedman's Free to Choose. The libertarian impulse is oftentimes driven by economics, but it's in contrast to the traditionalists. And so libertarians and traditionalists will oftentimes do fighting over stuff, like marriage, right? The libertarian says, I don't see why the government should be involved in that at all. Whereas the traditionalists say the government's always been involved in marriage. You can look back at Justinian's law code in ancient Rome. He defined marriage as a man and a woman, like, together. We're not going to change that because there are unintended consequences. Whereas the libertarian will say, hmm, is there anything about defining marriage the way that it is, you know, or redefining marriage that will encroach on other persons with their property or interfere with my right to contract? No, so they're not concerned with that. Natural rights conservatives. These folks, so if you're following my progression, I started in the libertarian camp. I read some Richard Weaver and sort of felt like I was a traditionalist. And then by the junior year of, of uh, college, I was like, hmm, these people are interesting. What are natural rights conservatives? Their foundational concept is this notion of natural right. If you go to the Declaration of Independence, it says, the laws of nature and of nature's God. It says, all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. What are those? It's the standard for right and good. And human reason can sort of understand that by looking to nature. So yes, human nature is fallible and flawed. They're constrained in their view. But human nature is also such that we have the capacity for great good and the capacity to understand moral foundations. So they're concerned with understanding great thinkers and great statesmen in order to understand politics. Because if you look at a human being, you can understand from a human being what a human being's rights are. A person is living person enjoys the fruit of their labor, that's their property, a person has natural liberty, and if that's not constrained by someone else, that will sort of flourish. You can also understand the greatest understanding of human nature comes from the greatest thinkers. And they're really into classical political philosophy. They would say that if human nature doesn't change, then the insights and wisdom of thinkers from long ago are still insightful. But whereas the libertarian has very simple rules for a complicated society and trusts market forces, and traditionalists have a great breadth of tradition that is sort of not reduced to any general theory. We don't have like a set of abstract principles. Natural rights conservatives actually are willing to go beyond the simple rules of the libertarian and beyond the sort of impersonal organic tradition of the Western culture and heritage we have to make a general theory of how politics works. So you have some natural rights conservatives, you've got Harvey Mansfield, you've got Larry Arn, my professor and mentor, the president of Pillsdale, you have Harry Jaffa, who founded the Claremont program I'm about to go to, um, and was professor to Dr. Arn. You have Leo Strauss in, in the middle there, and you have Alan Bloom there with the Coke bottle glasses. Bloom and Mansfield and Jaffa and Strauss all were at New Chicago FYI for a time. Natural rights conservatives love Abraham Lincoln because Abraham Lincoln put into words what they viewed as the right compass for politics. He says, the founding fathers meant to set up a standard maxim for free society, which should be familiar to all, constantly looked to, constantly labored for, and even though never perfectly attained, constantly approximated, and thereby constantly spreading and deepening its influence and augmenting the happiness and value of life to all people of all colors everywhere. So they look at the Declaration of Independence as this credo by which you can derive a lot from politics. But also they looked to people like Aristotle. The greatest inequality is to make unequal things equal. And Harry Jaffa himself 
understood that liberty and property come to sight as the means of the preservation of life, but their enduring worth is the service not of mere life, but of the good and happy life. It's the natural order of these wants directed toward their corresponding natural ends. Notice how they talk about nature, right? That constitute the architectonic principles, that's a great word, of society rising out of compact property understood. So here are some good thinkers on that. Larry R. Liberty and Learning, Alan Bloom, The Closing of the American Mind. Leo Strauss, it's kind of dense, but natural right in history, deeply important to the natural rights conservatives. And of course, John Locke and Alexis de Tocqueville. Lastly, we have the faith-based conservatives. Faith-based conservatives, their concept is biblical faith. And they have sort of a, a negative and a positive aspect when we're talking about the faith-based conservatives. First, they want to counteract politics that are hostile to faith. I think this is something that a lot of libertarians don't necessarily understand. They just say, like, get the government involved out of stuff, and then you won't have these culture wars. Well, I think one of the things that, that the faith-based conservative realizes is that the decline of the family that we've seen, the erosion of biblical faith and morality, was itself aided and abetted by progressive government policy, right? When you have welfare benefits that increase if you are not married and decrease if you are married and increase if you have children and you're not married, that will aid and abet people in making the wrong kind of moral choice, right? Moreover, there used to be prayer in public schools and the Supreme Court took it out. There used to be sort of this notion that public life could be infused by faith and then that was removed by government policy. And it used to be the case that states could regulate whether or not you had contraceptives or not accessible. Some states had it, some states didn't. The, the government through the Supreme Court in Griswold and Connecticut said, no, you can't do that anymore. And so it sort of actively eroded the, the faith in life. But there's also a positive aspect to faith-based conservatives. And I think this is very key for what FORGE stands for, and why I'm so behind what Adam and Justin and everyone who's involved here are doing, is that politics can do great good on earth in service of things that God cares about. If you have a limited government and your economy prospers and flourishes, as I think Ian Swanson put it, you know, if you're worried less about where your next paycheck is going to be coming from, you might have more time to contemplate where your eternal address is. The other thing about faith-based conservatives is that they provide a necessary reality check to life, because there are two kingdoms. There's the earthly kingdom and there's the heavenly kingdom. This life is not all there is. And as a consequence of that, you don't have to freak out as though the world is ending when the stock market crashes and Barack Obama gets elected president and your parents' 401k takes a dive. You don't have to worry when people who are your heroes transgress their own beliefs. And it can be sad, but it is not cataclysmic because we've already won the victory. Faith-based conservatives that I think are important. You've got C.S. Lewis there. You have Francis Schaeffer, that gentleman with the, with the beard, and kind of a quirky guy who I highly recommend to you. You've got uh, Chuck Colson, prison fellowship, but he was so influential in laying the groundwork for a lot of us. And then you have that, uh, that African thinker in the Western tradition, St. Augustine of Hippo. Samuel Sherwood, who was a pastor at the beginning of the American founding, he said the providences of God in first planting his church in this, then howling wilderness, talking about the new world, and in delivering and preserving it to this day, are reckoned among the most glorious events that are to be found in history. In these later ages of the world, and there are yet more glorious events in the womb of providence. 
They believe that God has a providential ordering aspect to history. Dr. Francis Shaver, I won't read his quotation there, but he understood that when you do not have reference to an eternal law, you will have an arbitrary earthly law. The Supreme Court now functions upon the fact of arbitrary law because they have no basis for the law to be fixed. The worldview that the final reality is only material or energy led to the breakdown of this country. So you have Francis Schaeffer who wrote How Should We Then Live? It's a prophetic book in 1976. It describes basically everything that we have seen come to transpire over the last 40 years, I'd say. And you have the update to it by Chuck Colson in 1999, How Now Shall We Live? The other thing about faith-based conservatives is that we realize, because our natures are constrained, the lure of power can separate the most resolute of Christians from the true nature of Christian leadership, which is service to others. It's difficult to stand upon a pedestal and wash the feet of those below. And Chuck Colson would know something about that. He was in the Nixon administration. He was a hard-charging, young, bright, conservative leader. And then Watergate happened, and he was convicted, and he went to prison. And then God came into his life, and God changed his worldview, and he came out as a servant leader. Because we, as Christians, recognize our own fallibility. We recognize our fallibility as political agents and actors. C.S. Lewis makes the point, the greatest things to be found in one's post is a child of God, living each day as though it were last, but planning as though our world might last a hundred years. Yes, the rapture could come at any minute. I don't know what you're theological about that. A-mill, post-mill, no-mill, I don't know. But the thing is, regardless of what you believe about that, you should be planning for Earth to be better as a reflection of God's care for those who are trodden down and for human flourishing. And Augustine, human beings are moved by what they love. If you love your fellow human beings, you will love them in your political action as well. So here are some, some good folks to talk about there. Francis Shaver, C.S. Lewis, Chuck Colson. Conclusion. What set of whys is most persuasive to you? Are you a traditionalist? Are you a natural rights-based conservative? Or are you a libertarian as you come to it? Uh, or are you most animated by sort of this faith-based? And I think it's not mutually exclusive. You can say, I'm a natural rights conservative who has a general theory of how government ought to work that is tempered and informed by the fact that how government works here on Earth in our fallen infallible state is different from how it works in the kingdom of heaven where we have our eternal address. Even if there are agreements about most results, the intellectual road you take matters to get there. And ideas have consequences, so pay careful attention. A lot of times I find, and this is my, my final appeal to you, conservatives are afflicted by a reactionary tendency to education and to intellectual things. They say, practical, what works, that's what we care about, that's what we want. Instead of realizing that when you are confronted by ideas that are hard and complicated and sophisticated and difficult to understand, that reduces you to show that you must be a humble and dutiful ser servant and student of these ideas that are great. And those thinkers who have gone before you should make you look less like those 93% of millennials who say, I'm very, very special. Instead, realize you have a place in history if you take that place humbly. And we are not to be opposed as believers, as Christians, as conservatives, to intellectual things merely because the left has captured our academies. If we're going to take back the academy, we have to realize ideas have consequences, and we need to pay careful attention to that.
Thank you for listening to the Forge Leadership Podcast. If you liked the show, please drop a review in your podcast app and be sure to subscribe for all our latest episodes. You can follow Forge Leadership Network at Forge Leadership on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For more information about Forge programming, please visit forgeleadership.org.